This morning I thought what we would do is I'd finish up a little Bible study that we had started yesterday, and then I want to take you deeply into what is medical missionary work from the biblical perspective. Because one of the greatest questions that church members ask is when they think of medical missionary work, they think, A, I'm not a medical person, so I can't be involved in medical missionary work. Secondly, they have this vague idea that medical missionary work is something like it's a person who is an Adventist physician or a nurse who accepts a call to be a missionary overseas. So they have a very um, foggy view of what medical missionary work is. So we want to talk about what is medical missionary work and how can you apply it to a local congregation. Uh, but first, we need to finish what we were doing yesterday. And of course, I'll save some time for you to ask questions. So let's pray. Father, thanks so much for the opportunity of studying again. Thanks so much of, that we can open the Word of God and we can look at the reality of the fact that you've called this people to lead men and women physically, mentally, and spiritually, and to help them to be whole. We just praise you, God, and we thank you with all our hearts for the unique call that you have given this people and this generation. In Christ's name, amen. amen. Yesterday, if you will recall, we looked at the biblical foundations of the Adventist health message. We went back to the book of Genesis, and we saw there in Genesis that God has given us the elements of health. Thanks. Appreciate that. Um, we've seen yesterday that God has given us the elements of the Adventist health message right in the book of Genesis. You've been seeing that every night in our creation health series. This creation health series that we're doing in the evenings will be available for pastors and local churches, lay people. The graphics will be available. The printed lectures will be available. DVDs will be available that you can use for small groups. That'll happen within the next month to six weeks. And uh, so we will put that material together. It's a great follow-up for your health programs. If you're doing a nutrition series in your church and you're do or you're doing a uh, depression seminar, doing a wellness program, what you're seeing in the evenings is a great bridge because it is biblical preaching, yet it provides an opportunity that ties it in with health. And so the person doesn't feel that they've had an abrupt transition between health and biblical values. So we will have some of that. My point is that yesterday we went back to the book of Genesis. And we saw in Genesis choice. We saw in Genesis rest. We saw in Genesis the fresh air and the environment and health. Maybe we should shut those doors and it will be less distracting. Thank you. So we looked at Genesis and we saw activity. And we saw tr uh, trust tonight. And we'll look at outlook and interpersonal relationships. And so nutrition. When you go back to Genesis, you see all the elements of health. We walked through Exodus. And we looked at the contrast between the Egyptian philosophy of health and the Mosaic philosophy of health. And we've looked at both of that contrast yesterday. And we've seen that there is a scientific basis for the Adventist health message. We discussed that. We went to the New Testament and we looked at Jesus and the ministry of Christ. We came yesterday to the remnant. And we raised our, the question just at the end of class, which I didn't complete. And the question that we raised is, is there biblical evidence that an end time people 
will be act will be have as the one of the foundations of the very essence of their movement, part of the DNA, the health message. Is God interested in health? Or is health something that's tacked on? Is health part of the very essence of the gospel? And so let's spend a little bit of time today before we launch into the actual lecture today of looking at the Word of God and raising the question, what role does health play and why before the coming of Jesus? If you have your Bible, please take it and turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And we're looking at the question of health in the light of the second coming of Christ. 1 Timothy, rather 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and we're looking there at verse 23. 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit, your soul, and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, who also will do it. Now notice the text. The text is talking about sanctification, holiness, growth in grace. The text is talking about the shaping of men and women into the image of Christ. And the Bible says that the, just before the coming of Jesus, God wants us to have this complete sanctification. In other words, he, that, are, that we reflect Jesus. And may your whole spirit, that is your mental attitude, that is the way you think about things. That's your disposition, your soul. That's your spiritual faculties, your body. That's, that's your uh, physical faculties. Be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the message of preparation for the coming of Jesus includes the inner attitudes. It includes our mental dispositions. It also includes our spiritual faculties, and it includes our physical faculties. In ancient Greek philosophy of Plato, we had what is known as Platonic dualism. Plato believed that the body and the soul were different. In fact, in Greek philosophy, suicide was absolutely, could be considered acceptable because it frees the soul from the prison house of the body. So in dualism, you have a separation where the soul is unaffected by what happens to the body. And at death, the soul is released from the body. Hebraic thought, biblical thought is, that there is a integrated wholeness, that you cannot separate the physical, mental, spiritual dimensions of man. And we know that scientifically today. If you have high stress, mental anxiety, that's related to your heart. To your heart. And, and so we know that there's a relationship between mind and body. But if you have strong faith, as I'll show you tonight, that impacts the mental stress, which impacts your heart. So the relationship between the physical, mental, and spiritual dimensions of life is both biblically sound and scientifically sound. Very few Christians understand that relationship. And one of the unique contributions that the Seventh-day Adventist Church has to men and women in our society is to help them understand this physical, mental, and spiritual relationship. When you come to the book of Revelation, in the 11th chapter, God takes our mind from earth to heaven. 
Revelation chapter 11 is the climax of one of the seven sequences of seven. And you're aware of the structure of Revelation. In Revelation 1, you have the introduction of the living Christ. In Revelation 1, Christ is the creator. In Revelation 1, Christ is the redeemer. In Revelation 1, Christ is the coming king. In Revelation 1, Jesus Christ is the first and the last. He is the alpha and omega. He is the one that walks among the candlesticks. So Revelation 1 introduces the reader to the total ministry of Jesus Christ. From Revelation 2 to 11, you have three sequences of seven. You have the seven churches, which represent the Christian church in every age and the very nature and essence of Christian life. So in the seven churches, we see the personal, the, the personal spiritual life of the believer illustrated in those seven sequences. And we see the, the, the relationship of the church to spirituality in every age. Following the seven churches, we have the seven seals. In the seven seals, we see the impact of Christianity upon the world. In, that is followed by the seven trumpets. In the seven trumpets, we see the impact of non-Christian forces upon the church. So you have the internal condition of the church spiritually in the seven churches. You have in the seven seals the impact of the church upon the world. And in the seven trumpets, trumpets indicate judgments of God. And you see the judgments of God upon the church as the world impacts the church. That takes you up to chapter 12, which is the hinge upon which the entire book of Revelation uh, folds. And in Revelation chapter 12, you have the great controversy between Christ and Satan in four episodes. You have the fall of Lucifer in heaven, Lucifer's attempt to destroy Jesus as a baby, the dark ages, and the remnant. And so Revelation 12 links the controversy that's been going on in chapters 1 to 11 with the controversy that will take place at end time. So Revelation 12 becomes the key chapter in the book, in the middle of the book, that links together all of the great controversy scene. Then in Revelation 13, the great controversy is played out with the beast power. And then Revelation 14, the message of God for final hours of earth's history. Revelation 15 and 16, the message of the plague. 17, Babylon. 18, Babylon. 19, the coming of Jesus. And 20, the millennium. And 21 and 22, heaven. So starting with 13 to 22, you have an end time message. That end time message is introduced at the end of chapter 11. And so we come to the end of 11. And we look there at 11, verse 18. The nations were angry, and your wrath has come. In the time of the dead, that they should be judged. That's obviously the second coming of Christ. That your reward, that you should reward your servants, the prophets, and the saints, and those who fear your name, small and great, should destroy them that destroy the earth. So Christ will come at a time when the human race has the capacity to destroy itself. The word destroy in the Greek language has to do with corrupt. It has to do with pollution. 
It has to do with annihilation. It's a large word. And so Christ will come at a time when this world's atmosphere is polluted, its waterways are polluted, when nuclear capacity has provided the earth the ability to destroy itself. You know, I am always reminded of that statement of Charles Urey back in 1945 and 46, where Urey said uh, he was the founder of, of course, one of the early scientists that participated in the making of the atomic bomb, and he said, I'm standing on the place where the end of the world began when he saw Hiroshima and its bombing. You know, I'm standing on the place. So we live at a time when these prophecies are being fulfilled. As often happens, the prophet takes his eyes off the earth and places them on heaven. Verse 19, away from the din and confusion of the earth, verse 19, the temple of God was opened in heaven and the ark of his covenant was seen in his temple. So the prophet looks from earth to heaven and he sees the temple of God with the Ark of the Covenant. Covenant, of course, deals with the covenant of the Lord. The law of God is the covenant of the Lord. Here's the Ark of the Covenant. The God's law is in that Ark. And so as early Adventists looked at the sanctuary and they saw the great disappointment that Christ didn't come, and as they took their eyes off the earth and the understanding of it at the end of the 2300 days that the earth was the sanctuary, they looked up into heaven. And what did they see there? They saw the law of God. They began to understand the Sabbath. And deeply embedded in that law is the commandment that says, thou shalt not kill. And that has much more to do than taking a gun and shooting your neighbor, but it has to do with respecting your body and not slowly killing it by lifestyle habits. So when we look to the sanctuary and the law of God, we have a call to obedience, not only an obedience to the Sabbath, but an obedience to the every law and every every the laws of God that were written in every nerve and tissue in our body. But there's a couple other things in that Ark of the Covenant. Let's go back to Numbers, Numbers chapter 18. Because one of the things that I want you to see in this class is that the Adventist health message is deeply, is not something added on by, quote, the Adventist prophet, Ellen White. And I want that to be clear, that it's not merely, and some of our critics say that you guys had a prophet, her name was, you had a so-called prophet, her name was Ellen White, and she invented an, a, a health message that's legalistic, that's not part of scripture. There's nothing that could be further from the truth. A people that are preparing for the coming of Jesus find in scripture itself the message of wholeness, physically, mentally, spiritually. And in the visions and dreams that God gave to Ellen White, it was an expansion on that biblical message for an end time people. No, numbers, the, 18th, the 17th chapter, God is talking about the sanctuary. We saw that the law of God written with God's own finger on tables of stone was there. Here we find something else in that sanctuary. And we're looking at Numbers 17 verse four. Then you shall place them, that is, the rods, in the tabernacle of meeting before the testimony where I meet with you. Verse 5, and it shall be that the rod of the man whom I choose will blossom. Thus I will rid myself of the murmurings of the children of Israel, which they murmur against you. Now let your eyes drop down to a description of what's going on. Verse 10. And the Lord said to Moses, bring Aaron's rod back before the testimony to be kept as a sign against the rebels. 
that you may put their murmurings away from me lest you die. Why was the rod that blossomed placed in the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary? This is one of the answers against any offshoot that ever was or ever will be. It was a sign of the respect for the divine authority of God that he had raised up in the leadership of his people. Because what you had was a rebellion of Korah, Dathan, and Abiru against that leadership. And so Aaron's rod that budded, placed in the sanctuary, was an eternal testimony for every offshoot movement down through history to respect the divine authority that God placed in his church. What you have in the sanctuary is three things in that Ark of the Covenant. The law of God that becomes the foundation for behavior. The rod that budded that becomes the foundation for church authority. And the manna which becomes the very foundation for the provision of God for his people to, to prepare them physically, mentally, spiritually through the Adventist health message. So the manna that is placed there in that golden pot of manna represents God's provision for his people physically. The rod represents God's provision for his people from the standpoint of ecclesiology through his church. And the Ten Commandments represent God's provision for his people in the moral law to provide them guidance. So in the sanctuary message, we find embedded there the fact that God is going to provide for his people a heavenly diet. Now, when you come to the three angels' message itself in Revelation, the 14th chapter, and we'll take a look at Revelation 14. Now, the structure of Revelation 14 is divided in, Revelation 14 is divided into three parts. First, you have the 144,000, or the people that will be the living redeemed. Um, Secondly, you have the message that prepares that group. And thirdly, you have the event for which they are prepared. So in Revelation 14, there are really three parts. There is a people, a message, and an event. The people are mentioned before the message because often in, 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 in biblical New Testament thought, you, you start with the end and then you come back to the beginning. So he starts with this people in heaven then he talks about the message that prepares them to be in heaven. Then he talks about the event that they're prepared for. We're particularly interested in Revelation chapter 14, verse 6 and 7. Recently, I traveled with Elder Wilson uh, through Germany. And we had numerous presentations there. And Elder Wilson asked me to make a presentation on the three angels' message in the postmodern mind how the three angels' message relates to postmodernism and secularism. And we took a look at the integrity of the three angels' message, and we went over it phrase by phrase and verse by verse in an hour and an hour and a half presentation. I will not go over that presentation with you, but I will simply say to you that if you carefully analyze the postmodernism today and you compare it to the message that God gave the message of Revelation 14, rather than being archaic 19th century uh, philosophy or, or thought patterns, as some of our critics would say, the message of Revelation 14 
is specifically designed by God to meet the society that we're living in. There is nothing more fresh, more full. Let me give you just a few examples of that as we read. Uh, Revelation 14, verse 6, I saw another angel flying, that's urgent, in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those that dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. Here's an international message that's to go to the ends of the earth. What do many youth long for? They want purpose, direction, meaning in their life. They want, they want life to have more than simply a, a, a meaning for the here and now. They're looking for something grand and big that they can attach to. They want to attach their wagon to a big star. This is a big star, a message that goes to the end of the earth, a message that uh, cross-cultural. What is the, um, what's the longing of many young people today and college-age young people? It's diversity. It's plurality. Anybody that has a narrow-minded viewpoint when it comes to ethnic or racial issues today that is prejudice is immediately turn, turns young people off. Why? Because they're smart enough to know that we live in a multicultural, diverse society. What's the essence of the three angels' message? Every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. That's pretty diverse. That's pretty multicultural, right? So when you look at the three angels' message, it's very embracing. It, it's not exclusive at all. It's embracing. That's what's in the very heart of the postmodern mind, to embrace various cultures where nobody is left out. Um, I'm almost wanting to preach this now, but I need to, I need to go on. <laughs> okay. What is the gospel? The gospel is the incredible good news that whatever your past, you can have a new start. The gospel is the incredible good news of God's forgiveness, his grace, his transforming power. The gospel says you're not locked in your genetic past. That's good news. But look, verse 7, saying with a loud voice, fear or reverence God, give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come. Just think about the judgment hour when it comes to the postmodern mind. What does the postmodern mind scream for? Justice, justice, fairness. You know, we want fairness. We want justice. Occupy Wall Street justice. You know. What does the judgment say? The judgment says that God's going to set all things right. The judgment says that whatever inequities there have been, whatever unfairness there have been, the judgment doesn't say everything is always fair on earth, but it says God is fair. The judgment says God is going to sit on his throne. He's going to set all things right. Now, I want you to look at something here. Worship him that made heaven, earth, the sea, and the springs of waters. Who's the one that made heaven, earth, sea, and the springs of waters? What do we call him? He's the creator. Loneliness, insecurity, lack of self-esteem. The hallmarks of our society, loneliness, fear, lack of self-esteem. But what is the call in Revelation 14? God made you. God fashioned you. You're not merely skin-covering bones. You're not some genetic accident. You're not uh, some leaf blowing in the breeze. You're not like a Coke can that's run over by some truck and you just uh, kicked along the road. When God made you, he threw away the pattern. And there's nobody else like you in the universe. You're special before God. Think about what that does to a postmodern young person that has no purpose in life and they want to blow out their brains because they have nothing to live for. 
God created you. God fashioned you. What we find and discover in Revelation, the 14th chapter, is the very essence of the need for our society. Now, where do we see the health message in Revelation 14? Two places. The Bible says, fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment is come. Worship him that made heaven, earth, the sea, and the fountains of waters. If you worship the creator, will you work with the creator to build up that which he has made, or will you work against him to tear down that which he has made? Young people are pretty interested in ecology. They're interested in the environment. They're interested in... If you're going to worship the creator, Seventh-day Adventists have something to say about the environment. We want to keep our environment as pure as possible. But wait, of all the things that God has made, what is the most significant of everything that God has made? You. you, The human body, right? So can I honestly say that I'm worshiping my creator if I am destroying the very essence of that creation? So can I say I'm honestly worshiping my creator if I have no concern about what I eat, no concern about what I drink, no concern about how I exercise? So deeply embedded with the call to worship the creator is a call to what? Health. But another aspect of this, fear God and give what? Glory to him. Well, you go back to 1 Corinthians, you know it well. 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians, the sixth chapter. And notice there verse 19 and 20. Don't you know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, who's in you, which you have from God, and you're not your own? You were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. I am twice Christ's. He created me, and he redeemed me. And the Bible says, glorify God in your what? Body. So the three angels' message that calls us to glorify God calls us to care for this human habitation that God gave us, right? So where is health in a message to prepare people for the coming of Jesus? We find it all through the New Testament. We find it particularly in Thessalonians, the call to preserve our bodies, minds, spirits blameless. We find it there. We find it in the sanctuary message. We find it in Revelation 14. We find it throughout Scripture. From Genesis to Revelation, there is this call by God And doesn't it make sense, doesn't it just make sense that if we have a call to worship God and praise God and live for God, that we would be concerned about our physical bodies? Any questions with what we've gone over there or comments or observations? We're going to go here and here. Yes, done. Sure. When Ellen White uses the expression third angel's message, she is in actual fact talking about all three messages comprehensively, typically. Um, Typically. But if you look at only the third angel's message, the third angel's message actually says that human beings are supreme and uh, that I I sit on a throne The the Antichrist power sits on the throne in the temple of God as he was God. But we, as we give our bodies to God, 
ask Jesus Christ to come into the body temple. So there is the contrast. If you're just looking at the last of those messages, there is the contrast between the man of sin, the Antichrist, who sits in the temple of God, drawing attention to himself, and our hearts being the temple of God and the spirit of God dwelling in us. So we are not... Um, we, our goal is not to become a little antichrist. You know, the, John says there are many antichrists that have gone out into the world. We don't want to be a little antichrist establishing our own temple, but we want our heart to be a temple for the Holy Spirit to dwell in, living in harmony with the principles of Jesus and his kingdom. Okay, there, skip, yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the anti-typical day of atonement. Yeah, that's a good point. Okay, a few more comments and I'll go into the lecture. Okay, take one, two, three, okay? And did we have one more up in the front row? Okay, take four more comments and then we'll go into this other lecture, yes? Sure, we talked about that last night, didn't we? We quoted that very text and talked about walking in the spirit and uh, walking in the light and so forth. It's balanced out this way. It has to do with a mindset. How do you see the Adventist health message? Do you see it as a legalistic, oppressive requirement giving by God as a means of salvation? Or do you see it as a response to grace? What are the reasons for the health message? One, a loving God wants us in health. Two, a loving God desires to have our minds the clearest possible so we can comprehend him. Three, a loving God wants us to be the most effective in reaching out to others. So when you look at those three fundamental reasons for the Adventist health message, health is not a means of grace or salvation. It's a byproduct of our saving relationship with Jesus. Why does God give us a health message? A loving God wants us to be in health. God cares for us. He's interested in us. Secondly, a loving God wants us to have a clear mind so we can know him better. And thirdly, a loving God wants us to be able to reach effectively out to others who may not be interested in spiritual things, but interested in their own soul salvation. Yes, back row. You know, it's interesting in Romans 12, 1, where Paul says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Philip's translation translates that as... Uh, as an act of worship. It translates the last phrase as an act of worship. I, I, he, I think he says, I appeal to you, I urge you to present your bodies uh, as an act of worship to God. And that's rightly on the point you're saying. Front row. Yeah. Thanks for the sharing. Now, how much time do I have for this next lecture? 30 minutes? 35. Oh, okay. The preacher's ready to go now. You give a preacher 35 minutes Sabbath morning, he should be able to say something. <laughs> All right, we're talking about the master's methods. Let's just pray for a moment. Father, we really, I'm just so thankful for this class, their spirit, and those comments were just right on target, and just sharing together is always so enriching. Now, as we put our minds together and try to understand a little more deeply and fully what medical missionary work really is and the ministry of Jesus. Help us to grasp it and apply it to our own lives. In Christ's name, amen. Some time ago, I read the story of Dr. Lewis Evans. Dr. Evans took a short-term mission 
appointment to go out and visit with one of his friends who was actually a missionary out in Korea. And he was, this was a number of years ago, and his friend was way, way back in a mountainous region in Korea working as a medical missionary in a very, very small village. So when Dr. Evans got there, his friend was performing a very delicate operation in a tent because, of course, way back in that mountainous region, there were no hospitals. And as the surgeon performed that operation, it took seven hours, and it was a very difficult, complicated stomach operation. The heat was stifling, the odors were oppressive, and this calm surgeon worked hour after tireless hour. He was working on a peasant woman, a woman who had no means at all. At the end of the operation, the surgeon took a deep breath and said, well, Lou, it's done. She's going to do well. Let's go back to the office. And they did. As they got back to the office, Lou Evans looked at his friend and he said, you know, if I would have done that operation in the United States, my profit would have been at least 25000 I just wanted to know how much you get out here for an operation like that. And the missionary, with tears in his eyes, reached down to his desk and pulled open his drawer and pulled out this old, dented, copper Korean coin. And he said, to begin with, I get this. He said, this woman came in about two weeks ago, and I recognized that she'd die if I didn't give her this operation. And she, and she said, well, Doc, I don't know if I can afford it. How much is it going to cost? And I said to her, well, what can you afford? Don't worry about what you can't afford. What can you afford? And she pulled out this old dented copper coin and said, I can give you this. And he said, that's exactly enough. That's exactly my fee. So he said, the first thing I get is this old coin. But he said, Dr. Evans, the second thing I get is this. Most of all, I have the priceless awareness that for seven hours, these hands become the hands of Jesus, healing one of his needy children. That's medical missionary work. That's medical missionary work. Knowing that as you meet the needs of another, whether that need is physical, whether that need is mental, whether that need is social, whether that need is spiritual, that Christ is working through your voice, Christ is seeing through your eyes, Christ is touching through your hands, the priceless awareness, Jesus sees through our eyes when we meet human need. Jesus listens through our ears when we hear cries of woe. Jesus speaks through our voice when we give words of encouragement. Jesus loves through our heart. Jesus touches through our hands. So medical missionary work is not something done by a select few that get on an airplane. Medical missionary work is done every day as we interface with others, as we let Christ see through our eyes their hurt, as we let Christ listen through our ears to their pain, as we let Christ speak through our voice to give them hope, as we let Jesus love through our heart the unlovely, as we let Jesus touch through our hands. That's truly medical missionary work. Every time we meet the needs of another, Every time we reach out in caring and concern to another, that is medical missionary work. Every time we unselfishly minister to somebody at a hospital bed and hold them in our arms and give them words of hope, every time we kindly serve another, 
Every time we go out of ourselves with compassionate concern, we reveal Jesus' love to people around us. This is medical missionary work. This is what it's all about. This is the essence of it. This is the heart of it. This is the soul of it. And so the question is, how do you view yourself as a health professional? How do you view yourself as a minister? How do you view yourself as a church member? How do you view yourself? You see, ours is not a common calling. We have been called, every single church member has been called to this medical missionary work. We've been called by the master as a visible manifestation of unselfish love in an age of selfishness. Unselfish love in the age of selfishness. That's what we're called for, to reach out unselfishly to others. You see, we've been called by Jesus to do what? Break down prejudice, soften hard hearts, open closed minds, to minister healing to people with broken spirits and diseased bodies, to follow in Jesus' footsteps, meeting needs everywhere in Jesus' name. What is the church? The church is the body of Christ with members gifted by the master who, to, who are to go out with the ministry of love to meet needs everywhere in Jesus' name. That's it. That's what church is all about. Now, I want to take you with me on a journey with Jesus through John's gospel. When this first dawned on me, and I began to understand the structure of John's gospel, it was really transformative in my ministry. It was really transformative. When you come to John chapter 1, Jesus introduces the model of evangelism that he's going to follow throughout the Gospel of John. There are two disciples following Jesus, and Jesus turns and seeing them following, says to them, what do you seek? Now this four-word question becomes the very basis of Jesus' ministry. Jesus never began where he was, he always began where other people were. Jesus never began with his concerns, he began with theirs. He never began with his needs, he began with theirs. So here is the what seek ye principle. What seek ye? Jesus is saying, what are you seeking? Is your heart broken because your husband has left you for somebody else? What are you seeking? The woman at the well, what are you seeking, ma'am? You're living with a number of guys and they're not your... What are you seeking? What are you seeking? Are you hungry? What are you seeking? Are you discouraged? What are you seeking? Did your son just die? What are you seeking? That is foreign to the world. The world has absolutely no clue about somebody coming with unselfish motives asking what they're seeking. Now, the high point in the Gospel of John is John 6. Why is the high point in the Gospel of John, John 6? The first part, Jesus has multiplied the bread and fed. He gives that famous Sermon on the Bread of Life, but before that, the audience wants to make him king. Jesus' popularity has reached to an apex or a high point in John 6. What led up to that? Well, let's go through it. The Jesus model, what are you seeking? What's going on in your mind? What's in the deepest recesses of your heart? What are your needs? Where do you hurt? Are you experiencing pain? This is the medical missionary model. The medical missionary model begins with assessing the need of another. The medical missionary model begins with assessing the need of the community. The medical missionary model begins with the felt needs of people because if we don't meet their felt needs, they'll not be open for us to meet their ultimate needs. 
So the Jesus model is what are you seeking? What's going on in your mind? What's in the deepest recesses of your heart? What are your needs? Where do you hurt? Are you experiencing pain? Jesus began with others' agenda, not his. He was more interested in their needs than his own. And Jesus always begins where people are, not where he is. Do you remember the story of Jacob's ladder? Jacob's ladder reaches just where you are. Praise God. The ladder is not 12 feet above earth, and I have to jump, and I can never reach it. Jacob's ladder comes down right where you are. And Jesus comes where we are. He comes in human flesh, understanding our needs to meet them. We go now to the wedding feast of Cana of Galilee, John chapter 2. What is the need in John chapter 2? The need in John chapter 2 is a what? Social need. The host runs out of wine at the wedding feast of Cana of Galilee. I will come back to that point shortly. The, the host runs out of wine. And if, you have, if you've run out of wine, and it is terribly socially embarrassing, let's suppose, for example, you were having, your, your daughter were getting married, and you were having vegetarian sandwiches, whole wheat with veggie chicken, with sparkling grape juice, and the conference president was in line next, and you say, sorry, uh, we just ran out of all food. How would you feel? Pretty socially embarrassed. That's what was happening here. Now, I should just pause, because you are health reformers, and you're concerned about John 2, and you wished it weren't in the Bible, because when you give Bible studies about temperance, they always bring up wine. I want to show you from the scriptures itself that this could not possibly have been fermented wine. And just to ease your mind on that, um, I need to go to the text itself. And what miracle was this that Jesus performed? What miracle was this? His first, correct? That's an important point. John chapter 2, we start with verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee. What day? When you think of the expression third day in John's Gospels, what does that immediately point you to? Yeah. If you take every third day expression in the Gospels, destroy this body, and on the third day I'll raise it up again. You see, or as you look through the Gospels, when you, ex the, when you read the expression third day, it's a clue, it's a pointer. It's a pointer to the cross. On the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee. Cana is wickedness. So now we have two pointers to the cross. We have Cana, the center of wickedness. There's a wedding there. And the mother of Jesus was there. When Jesus died on the cross, where was his mother? She was there. She was there. Third day, Cana, wickedness, mother of Jesus was there. Now both Jesus and his disciples are invited to the wedding. And they ran out of wine, and the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Verse 4, this is the key now. Jesus said to her, women, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. When you read the expression, my hour has not yet come, keep your finger here and I'll help you. John 17, what hour is he talking about? Okay, John 17, verse 1. 
Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven, and said, Father, the hour, what? Has come. See, these are all pointers for the cross. Why? When they pierced Jesus' side on the cross, what happened? Blood and what? Water came out. So, what do we have in John 2 in the first of his miracles? He would turn the water of Judaism into the wine of the gospel. So that on the cross of Calvary, Jesus took the old water of Judaism and he turned it into the wine of his grace and the wine of his goodness. This is the new covenant of my blood that is shed for you. So the pure, unfermented juice of the wine would represent the pure blood of Christ. And this wine could not have been fermented because Christ's blood would have been sin-tinged. Are you with me? Yes, sir. So it couldn't have been because it represented the wine of the gospel. It represented the blood of Christ. That's the theological reason. Now there is another practical reason, and I'll tell you the practical reason. It's very simple. Verse 6, and then I'm going to come to my point. This is all aside. You have to pay no extra for this for the class. <laughs> now, verse 6, now there were set six water pots of stone according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. So if it's 20 gallons apiece, six times 20 are 120, six times 30 are 180. So you've got 180 gallons of wine there, okay? What size was Cana of Galilee and how many people were at the wedding? Cana was a little village. We're not 100% sure of the size, but it probably wouldn't have been two, more than 250 in the village. My estimate, most estimates are 75 people came to that wedding. Now, I'll tell you something. I don't know much about wine, but I know this. If you've got 180 gallons, you can get more than 75 people drunk. I know that, right? <laughs> how much does it take to get, we got some dog, how much does it take to get a person drunk on wine? Half a gallon? How do you know that? I don't know that stuff. I never drank. How do you know that stuff? Okay. <laughs> All right. How, how much? Five glasses? Uh, a quart? There, would you agree that if they drank a half a gallon, they'd be drunk? Would you? Okay. Are you willing to, to say that Jesus got a whole village drunk and he was responsible for somebody taking another guy's... Would you say that even 10% of the people got drunk? How many people get drunk at weddings today? Do 50% of them get drunk? I don't know. 10% drunk? Okay, even if you're going to argue that he only got 10% of the people drunk, what did they do? Go home and beat their wife? What did they do? Go home and, uh, and go with somebody else's wife that night? You know, are you going to say Jesus is morally and ethically responsible for getting people drunk at that wedding? It is inconceivable that that was fermented wine. Inconceivable theologically, inconceivable practically. Now, that was just a side. That was not even my point, but I knew you needed that answer. Okay, now, when you look at the wedding feast of Cain of Galilee, what's the main issue here? Somebody is socially embarrassed. This host of the wedding feast is so embarrassed that he can't handle it, and Jesus steps in to work a miracle to meet his social need. Next chapter, chapter 3. The need is not social at all, it is spiritual. Nicodemus has a need in his heart. He comes to Jesus, and as the result of coming to Jesus with that need in his heart, he has had formal religion. 
Jesus says, you must be born again. And Jesus meets a spiritual need. You come to John chapter 4. The felt need is neither social nor spiritual. The felt need is deeply emotional. Did you notice the contrast between John 3 and John 4? Nicodemus comes by night. She comes by day. Nicodemus comes seeking Jesus. She stumbles across Jesus. Nicodemus is wealthy. She is poor. Nicodemus is a Jew. She is a Gentile. Nicodemus is a man. She is a woman. Nicodemus is highly respected. She is a woman of, of disrespect. Jesus meets her emotional needs. Jesus shows her care. Jesus shows her concern. Jesus reveals him his loving compassion, not for her body, but for who she is as a human being. For the first time in her life, she feels that somebody cares for her, somebody's interested in her, somebody can have uh, the, the deepest emotional needs of her heart can be met. John 2, the needs are social. John 3, the needs are spiritual. John 4, the needs are emotional. Look, here's the Jesus model. John 1, Jesus begins where people are. He wants to know what their needs are. John 2, he meets social needs. John 3, he meets spiritual needs with Nicodemus. John 4, he meets emotional needs. John 5, he meets physical needs. Physical needs in John chapter 5. Because there is a man by the pool of Bethesda. And as he is there, and that's a fascinating story in and of itself, Bethesda. Beth always means house of. Beth means house of. Bethlehem. Beth is house of. Lehem is bread. Jesus, the bread of life, was born at the house of the baker, Bethlehem. Beth, Seda. Seda is fish. Beth is house of. Jesus called his disciples to be fishers of men at the house of fishing. Beth, Esda. Beth is house of. Esda is mercy. So Jesus comes to the most despicable place where people are sick where their bodies are diseased, where they're hopeless, they're discouraged, and he makes it a house of mercy. Every place Christ comes, he makes that gracious house of mercy, Bethesda. So Jesus comes there. Yeah, Beth SDA. Yeah, that's, a, that's a good one, Beth SDA. He gave me one. I'll, I won't forget that one. So Jesus comes to that place, and he makes it a house of mercy, he meets the man's physical needs. Jesus says to the man, do you want to get well? All wellness begins with our choice. Jesus' method of evangelism, what is it? Find a need and meet it. Jesus touched people at the point of their need, whether that need was social or spiritual or emotional or physical. Ministry of Healing 143, you know it well. Let's read it together. Christ's method alone will give true success in reaching the people. The Savior mingled with men and women as one who desired their good. He showed his sympathy for them, ministered to their what? Needs. Won their confidence, but then what did he do? Did he simply minister to their needs? He did much more. He bade them follow me. As we minister to them in their loneliness and heartache, their minds open to eternal realities. Felt needs, as we minister to felt needs, they're they're open to have their ultimate needs met. And God enables us, really, to meet the felt needs of people. The need may be the need to quit smoking. The need may be the need to lose weight. The need may be the felt need for a happier marriage. The need may be the felt need to alleviate some pain that they're experiencing or going through in their life. 
the need may be, the felt need for a cure of heart disease or cancer. The felt need is the one a person is interested in satisfying now. The ultimate need is what human beings need most in the long run. It's, what deep, it's what's deeply embedded in their hearts and minds. Reconciliation with God is our ultimate need. Martin Sigelman, the former president of the American Psychological Association, wrote a book called Authentic Happiness, and this is what he said. Legions of people in the middle of great wealth are rich but aimless. They are full of doubt about everything and starving spiritually. Do not assume that the people coming to your health programs are not open spiritually. The president of the American Psychological Association says people are starving spiritually. Philip Cushman is an American psychologist. He concurs that our prosperous and individualistic society has constructed a self that is fundamentally a disappointment to itself. Fundamentally. That it's a, we've constructed a self in a technological society that is a disappointment to self. An Australian epidemiologist, Richard Eckersley, sums up the human spiritual dilemma in his book, Well and Good, with these words. Filling up an empty self is a poor substitute for the meaning derived from deep and enduring personal, social, and spiritual attachments. As a result, our society is realizing that it has been running on empty and is seeking to rediscover a deeper spiritual comfort. I am impressed every place I go when we conduct health classes, when we interface with people, many of them intelligent, wealthy, spiritual, that there's this spiritual angst in the heart. When you unselfishly minister to others, hearts are open spiritually. Christ wasn't content merely to heal the woman with an issue of blood from physical affliction. He longed to evoke a response of faith in her heart. He wasn't content to heal withered arms. He longed to heal withered souls. He wasn't content to merely heal diseased bodies. He longed to heal diseased minds. He wasn't content to heal people externally. He wanted to heal them internally. He wasn't content to heal them physically. He wanted to heal them spiritually. Physical healing without spiritual healing is what? It's incomplete. Christ was interested in more, much more, than opening blind eyes. He longed for people to see divine realities. Do we have ulterior motives as we minister physically, mentally, and emotionally to people? We do. We do. We will never manipulate people. We will never force religion upon them or spirituality or Christ. But by the grace of God, we will give them opportunity. We'll open the door for them. We're willing to help people because they're children of God and created in his image. But we recognize that without the spiritual, their lives are going to be incomplete. And we long to know them. Because if love prompts us to meet their physical needs, that same love will cause us to want them to give everything Jesus offers. One afternoon, Dr. Harry Miller was walking with Stella Hauser, one of his older students, when she inquired about his plans for the future. And um, he said, I want to serve. I want to go to China. He got really serious about serving. And Harry Miller began to pray that the Lord would open up China for him. The church wasn't real excited about that. And the church saw very little possibility, but God put this burden on Harry Miller's heart. 
And the board said, we have no funds to send you. Harry Miller said, no problem, I'll, find, I'll raise my own money, I'll go anyway. He was going as a doctor, he said, I'll need some Christian literature. They said, we don't have any literature. He said, well, I'll get it translated. I will print it myself. He did. Dr. John Harvey Kellogg tried to dissuade him, believing he was wasting his talents on an unknown future. And Kellogg said to Harry Miller, look, you're going to waste your talents out there in China. But God put a burden on his heart. Dr. Kellogg was persuasive, but the needs of China stood out in stark release against an attractive alternative. Um, Kellogg wanted him to come up to Battle Creek, and he wanted to pay him a handsome sum. He recognized in this young student, this brilliant mind, but you know, when God puts a burden in your heart, you've got to do it. When God put a burden in your heart, you've got to do it. And God put a burden in Harry Miller's heart. He traveled an ocean away. He went to China. On the, he went on the Canadian Pacific Empress of India. It took months to get there. And as he was aboard that boat, he got sick. And Miller was sick most of the way to China for over a month, vomiting and vomiting. But he said, God, you have sent me, and I know you're going to deal with it. And the waves rolled, you know. But he said, look, I am going to make a vow. And he, he said this. It was really funny. He said, God, if you send me to China, I'm never coming back because he didn't want to get sick again. And the Lord sent him to China. I'm going to China and stay through all my life. I'm never going back to America again. I'll die before I go through a siege of seasickness like that. The Lord knew what, what, what Harry Miller needed. He became a missionary to China, opened our work in China, developed soy milk, saved thousands of Chinese babies. And today, do you realize we have over 400,000 believers in China? Seeds of the work go back to this man. His medical missionary work was to carry him into all parts. Eventually, the United States, he did come back to more than 50 nations of the world. He had one of the most wide-ranging and most significant medical practices in history. Dr. Miller never performed surgery without praying for his patients. He shared literature with them. He led many to the foot of the cross. Do you sense God calling you two to a life of selfless service? Maybe God is leading you out right now in your life to something you don't know. Maybe your future is unknown. It's uncertain. You're going to go back to your local church, and you really don't know how you're going to implement these principles. Maybe you're a pastor, and you say, look, I'm not sure how I'm going to put all this to practice that I've heard here. Maybe you're a health director of a conference, and you're learning a lot. Or maybe you're a layperson, and you say, you know what? My future is quite uncertain. Maybe you're in the middle of transition in your life, but you know God is leading you to some form of unselfish service. The, the Christ that calls you will equip you, will prepare you, when God asks you to do a work, he is fully capable of equipping you to do the work he asks you to do. Amen. When God asks you to do a work, he is fully capable of funding the work he asks you to do. When God asks you to do a work, he is fully capable of bringing together the team to enable you to do that work. When God asks you to do a work, and you step out in faith and do it because Jesus asked you to do it, he takes upon himself the responsibility for the results. We never have to weary ourselves over success in God's work. Why not? Because he is the one who has called us, and we simply follow him, and he opens the doors. I want to pray for you just now. Father in heaven, there are people in this class I know, and there are some here that are facing real transitions in their lives. And I know you are the God that called us to model Jesus' ministry, to meet the needs of men and women socially and emotionally and physically and mentally. And Lord, you're the God. You're the incredible God that called Harry Miller. When Harry Miller got on that boat, and the boat was rocking, and he was so incredibly sick, he wondered it for a time, what in the world am I doing? But he knew you had called him, and you never call us to be free from difficulties. 
and you blessed Harry Miller's work to open the work of God with Abraham LaRue in China, and you've blessed him as he's gone to nation after nation after nation. You, found, you made yourself responsible for the success of his work. And Father, I pray for pastors. I pray for health leaders in local churches. I pray for health administrators and conferences. Oh, Jesus, help us to know that as we step out in faith, as we have big visions for you, as we sense your call in our hearts, that you will guide us, that you'll direct us, that you'll lead us to success. We praise you for that. We praise you for that, Lord. And we thank you that as we commit our lives to unselfish service, that you will do more for us than we can imagine. In Christ's name. This media was produced by Audioverse for the NAD Health Summit. If you would like to learn more about the NAD Health Summit, please visit www.nadhealthsummit.com. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.